0: This week, is Minnesota's voting system vulnerable to Russian cyber attacks? We check in with Secretary of State Steve Simon to find out. Also, Minnesotans helped get the power back on in Puerto Rico and a preview of the Gopher baseball season. But first, voters went to the polls for special elections this week in South Central Minnesota and in the Southeast Metro, prompted by the resignations of Vernon Center Republican Tony Cornish and South St. Paul Democrat Dan Schoen amid allegations of sexual harassment. But MN's Bill Werner tells us, despite intense efforts, By the opposing political parties, neither seat switched sides. Scott, not surprisingly, Republicans held on
1: to Cornish's old seat in Minnesota House District 23B in south-central Minnesota. Republican Jeremy Munson from Lake Crystal bested Democratic rival Melissa Wagner, 59 to 40 percent. Munson says one of his priorities is addressing tax law changes. To make sure that our tax code at the state level conforms with the federal changes that went in. Munson says health care is one of the biggest issues weighing on many in his district, farmers in particular.
0: I hope to meet with legislators and build a coalition to push for price transparency at the doctor's office and pharmacies so that we can lower costs through more competition and uh, see what we can do about allowing consumers in our district to purchase insurance from across state lines.
1: At least in House District 23B, Republicans' win ran counter to the anti-Trump backlash Democrats were hoping for. GOP House Speaker Kurt Dowd says... The decisive win here, almost 2-1 to for the Republican candidate, really says that people in that district didn't
2: come out and vote against Trump.
1: Meanwhile, in District 54 in the southeast metro, Democrats retained their seat in the Minnesota Senate. Cottage Grove resident Carla Bigham beating Republican Denny McNamara by four points, 51 to 47 percent. Senate Minority Leader Tom Bach says the DFL
3: won it against, I would argue, the strongest candidate the Republicans could have possibly put up.
1: Senator-elect Bigham says she's very excited and humbled and predicts education funding and health care will be big topics in the upcoming legislative session.
4: Transportation is um, always an issue that has risen to the top of this
5: district. Clean water more recently.
1: Democrats winning the special election in District 54 gives them a possible shot at retaking the majority in the Minnesota Senate. After this special election, they still have 33 votes. Republicans still have 34. But Painesville Senator Michelle Fishbach, a Republican, became lieutenant governor when Tina Smith went to the U.S. Senate to replace Al Franken. Democrats argue the Minnesota Constitution does not allow Fishbach to be lieutenant governor and a state senator at the same time. Fishbach responds, there's ample legal precedent that she can. That dispute already went to court, but the judge basically said this week the case isn't ripe, that we have to wait and see what Republicans do when the legislature convenes on Tuesday. Senate Republican Majority Leader Paul Gazelka says it's Democrats' move.
5: We're all going to wait together to see what uh, Senator Bach d- does. Uh, I, I would like them to leave it alone so we can actually do the people's work, but... Um, it's already difficult at 34-33, no matter who's in charge. At 33-33, every day we have to have a quorum of 34 to start. And it just If you thought it was slow last year and you wondered why we had all these late nights and all of that, it's because you have to have 34 every day, and we didn't have 34 every day.
3: So I would hate to have a 33-33.
1: Senate Democratic Minority Leader Tom Bach says...
3: I think the first move really belongs to the Senate Republicans. I think the question is, is she going to assume assume her role as president of the Senate when we convene on Tuesday? then I, I think there's a clear constitutional violation i mean the constitution seems real clear to me you can't hold two offices now how do you get the courts to take that issue on and, and address it I'm, I'm i'm not as sure if senator Fishbach is not presiding i think then that sends a different signal
6: if she gavels in does that tell you everything you need to know
3: Well, I I think it tells me that she's clearly plans to hold two offices. And And, then that triggers triggers a lawsuit. It's potentially problematic, yeah. I think when she casts that first vote, uh, I think that raises a question of, is that vote constitutional? I believe that the, the day that she became lieutenant governor, she was no longer a member of the Senate. But we can't seem to get the court to take that issue up.
1: Given this legal strife right at the beginning of the legislative session, plus the shadow of last summer and fall's court battle over Governor Mark Dayton vetoing the legislature's operating funds, how difficult will it be for lawmakers to get things done during the 2018 session, which begins Tuesday? Governor Dayton's answer?
5: Well, I'm certainly want to set all that aside. I've had very good meetings uh, one-on-one with the Speaker and with the majority leader and first with the DFL leaders. Everybody in Minnesota has a stake in what we can accomplish. Uh, which we'll have our differences for sure, but also working together. This whole tax, federal tax bill, and the impact on Minnesota, hugely uh, complex, but vitally important. Hundreds of millions of dollars on the line there. We're going to have to work together, or we're going to have a stalemate, and uh, Minnesota's will have uh, extremely complicated tax forms to be yeah. filling out. A year from now. So there are areas where the people have a right to expect us to work together and I, I'm prepared to do that. I think uh, the leaders have indicated the same. We can proceed on that basis. Senate Republican leader Paul Gazelka says. Amen to the governor. I, I um, you know, if we look at last year the tax bill and the transportation bill and Real ID and the, the stopping the collapse of health care and all the different issues we were at this forum last year and said that's what we needed to work on and we needed to work on it together. And I will say, you know, the last lawsuit uh, didn't go well for our side, and yet uh, the governor called and said, I want to move forward. Uh, I'm going to, you know, just send me that uh, legislative budget and I'll take care of it. And um, that is his goodwill going forward. We're going to say the same thing. Well, Scott,
1: we'll see how long things stay harmonious at the Minnesota Legislature.
5: Thank you,
0: Bill. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson. Earlier this week, national intelligence officials testified in Washington about Russia's interference in the 2016 election, and the officials warned that Russia will very likely try to undermine the upcoming midterm elections in the U.S. I recently spoke with Minnesota Secretary of State Steve Simon about the threats and what's being done to protect against them. How confident can Minnesotans be that their election information is safe and accurate? Well, let me
4: say that today's testimony, I think, uh, reveals the central challenge here. On the one hand, it is a huge issue of concern for everyone who has anything to do with elections. Today's testimony just put the exclamation point on that. We are in a race without a finish line, in essence, against people who want to do us harm. That said the fundamentals of Minnesota's election system are very, very sound. Now, that's not a guarantee that nothing could happen, but we are still a pen and paper state, for one. Uh, we, we don't go in for these touchscreen uh, ballot machines with no paper trail. To the contrary, we are proudly old school with pen and paper. And though there are technological components in the polling place, like putting your ballot into a ballot counter, that machine must not and shall not be connected to the Internet under state law. So we have some really good things going in Minnesota, but um, there are other portions of the system where we really have to pay close attention. For example, the statewide voter registration system, it's a centralized database of all voters that we in our office of secretary of state run. And while we had a great record last cycle and we're, we're able to uh, beat back any attempts to sort of intrude or, or get in or make mischief, um, we can't sort of um, rest on that success. And we have to constantly be staying one step ahead of the bad guys. So. I think our system is fundamentally safe. We have a fundamentally good structure and system, but staying ahead of the bad guys is going to take a lot of work and focus and resources.
0: Is this going to require some changes through legislation, say, at the state capitol?
4: Yes. We think that uh, there are a number of things that will require some legislative changes at the capitol, and one of them has to do with just financing all of this. Um, We have been working very closely with the Department of Homeland Security, for example, on cybersecurity. And they've been out to our office a number of times and are going to continue to over the coming months. And naturally, once they look at our system, put it through the paces, they very often make recommendations about things that we could do. Those things cost money. They're not things that are currently in our budget. And so we've been talking with the legislature about... Uh, both temporary and permanent fixes in state law that would enable us to have some steady stream of funding for cybersecurity improvements. So that definitely will take a change in state law and it's one that is necessary.
0: You know, intelligence officials say that uh, based on information they received, Russians launched cyber attacks against about 21 state election systems. What what involvement did Minnesota have in that particular uh, effort?
4: Minnesota was one of those 21 states. We were one of those states. And what that meant was, um, uh, according to the intelligence officials who can't reveal specifics about sources and methods, that there were people with bad motives affiliated with the Russian government who intended to do us harm. So they targeted us in that way. I want to make very clear that we were not hacked. We were never hacked. In fact, there wasn't even an attempted hack. But there was an intention to look for a way into our system. And we have that documented, and we have the IP addresses. The system worked in 2016. We were able to rebuff and block anyone who tried to do us harm. But the bad guys get more clever and more resourceful every year. And so that's why I say it's an ongoing race to stay one step ahead. So I don't know whether in 2018, none of us do, of course, we'll be one of the targeted states or not. I think to be safe, we have to assume we will be, and that means uh, really being as cutting edge as we can about cybersecurity practices.
0: It seems, Mr. Secretary, like there are people on both sides of the aisle who agree that uh, Russia is meddling with our election system, although the president hasn't really come out and said too much about that. Does that make it more difficult, say, in your position to try to solve the problem when the president seems to be on the fence about the issue?
4: I'll tell you, I am really heartened by the fact that whenever they are asked, including today, Uh, intelligence officials at all the national intelligence uh, agencies speak with one voice and say this is a threat. It did happen in 2016. It is likely Uh, to happen in some form in 2018, and they're the folks on the ground, they're the ones doing the day-to-day protection, and I'm gratified to have their support. Am I disappointed that the president very often either doesn't echo their concern or seems to contradict it? Yeah, I, I find that disappointing, but fortunately the people who are on the ground doing the work, providing the input and the advice and the counsel to us, they do get the issue, and they do stand by those assessments, so I 'm happy about that.
0: Mr. Secretary, is there anything that the individual voter in Minnesota can do to ensure that their voting information is safe and accurate?
4: Um, I, I would say this uh, it goes back to the, the what we're taught generally when it comes to homeland security issues, not just cybersecurity, which is if you see, if you see something, say something. Um, That applies in a lot of different situations, but the individual voter, if they hear of something or know of something, should report that, particularly when it comes to cybersecurity. But in terms of the polling place experience, my advice would be for voters just to do as they always do, go to the polling place if that's the way they vote, vote in pen and paper the way that we have done for decades and decades. If they vote absentee, same thing. Um, uh, just, Just keep... Uh, keep their eyes open for any sort of mischief. But again, the good news is our system is fundamentally sound, but there's always that threat out there.
0: All right. Good information, Mr. Secretary. Anything else you wanted to add this afternoon?
4: just that this is an issue that I hope we can uh, find common ground on. This is not a partisan issue. This is not a red team versus blue team issue. This is an everyone issue. And um, I think intelligence officials have made it very clear that this has to be a national priority. It certainly is in our office, and it certainly is in Minnesota.
0: Thank you to my guest, Minnesota Secretary of State Steve Simon. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. Power crews from across the U.S. are still working to restore full power across Puerto Rico more than four months after Hurricane Maria. J.W. Cox spoke with an Xcel Energy operations manager from right here in Minnesota who spent the last two weeks in the heart of the recovery effort.
6: Got that cheer not for a school bell to end the day or to end a period. That's a cheer for a school bell that signals the end of an ordeal. An ordeal ended, thanks in part to some Minnesota elbow grease.
2: So I've been involved with Irene, Sandy, Irma, and now Maria. I would say that this one's far none, you know, even after five months. It's the most devastating. I'll say that.
6: That's Lee Nordby, an XL Energy Manager from Albertville. Since January 29th, he and his crew have worked 14-hour days as part of the recovery effort. Their latest triumph, power back on for students at the Montessori School, Escuela Rexford Guy Tugwell.
2: I think this has been kind of rang true this whole time. When you've when you seen that school video, we did turn on another school today, and the kids were just bouncing off the walls, happy as heck. They were hooting and hollering and then they ended up actually singing happy birthday to one of our guys because he'll be turning 50 on on Sunday. So it was really cool to see that stuff. They've been so nice to us down here. I mean, we've had customers actually cook us a meal out on the, out on the job. One guy ran in and ended up getting 30 pork chops and rice and all that and made it for enough for 20 guys.
6: With each success, though, comes a new challenge. Every day, XO crews come face-to-face with the 25% of the island's population that remains without power.
2: One of the gals at our hotel, she doesn't have power. So she said that pretty much she brings her electronics in, charges them up at work, and then goes home with them. Hasn't had a cold, you know, pretty much has had a cold shower for five months. When you see some of these uh, citizens come on, out of their house... You kind of can see it in their face when they just light up and they're waving at you, they're greeting you.
6: Minnesota crews are working in the mountains of Kawas, a remote region in the southeast area of the island. This is where the storm came inland and the damage is significant.
2: There's really tight roads. It's kind of hard to kind of get up into. Some of the areas are not truck accessible, so the crews are actually working off of Belt and Hooks. The terrain is definitely interesting because it's it's difficult to get to some of the stuff. So most of the work the crews have been doing is broken poles, wire down. Some of the more difficult things was we had a broken pole. One span was at least 1,500 feet and the other span was probably 1,200 feet in a canyon and trying to get the wire from one side to the other. Tomorrow we plan on stringing through that. that. That's probably been One of the more difficult projects we've had.
6: And there's little downtime for the crews. Norby had to carve out some time away from the heavy work schedule just to speak with me from the island.
2: At 5 a.m., we're on the buses heading to Caguas from 6 to 7. We usually eat breakfast, stock trucks. 7 o'clock, we have our safety briefing with all opcos, which is Colorado, Minnesota, Texas. So roughly probably 70 employees there. Then we have breakout after that and kind of talk about what projects we're working on for the day. After that, then we go to work. We end up getting there 40 minutes after that. I would say we're heading in about 5.30, 5.45 from the mountain back into Caguas to to eat. The guys will get all their trucks ready, stuff like that. They'll get on the bus at 7, 7 to 8. They're riding the bus, 8 o'clock. They'll go and eat from 8 to 9, and then they started it all over again on uh, the next day.
6: Norby says it's rewarding work, but also provides a unique challenge that he and his fellow workers don't see here in Minnesota.
2: Some of the difficulties the crews have come across is kind of working through canyons and trying to get the wire back up in the air, uh, getting them out of the trees. The traffic can be a little uh, chaotic because there is no street lights. When you come to a streetlight and it actually works, uh, that's definitely a plus. There's a lot of streetlights that are without power, so you kind of have to inch your way forward and try to get right, right away there.
6: Speaking of home, what's the biggest thing he missed being away from Minnesota? I'd
2: say the family. Definitely not the weather, though. I don't really care for the cold weather, so... It actually works out uh, a little bit, but I definitely miss my 4-year-old and 6-year-old back at home and my
6: wife. At the time we spoke, XL crews had a direct hand in restoring power to 2,000 people on the island, but there's still plenty of work left for them to do.
2: We're on a, a feeder right now that we'd like to have buttoned up by the time we leave. We would like to see it. As long as we have equipment to put up in the air and all that, we should be able to meet the goal. So to kind of get the whole mountain with the lights on, all that kind of good stuff with that. I'd say there's a couple more pumps that we'd like to see get energized because, for one, they have generators on them. And with the generation that's happening, they don't get water 24-7. So sometimes, sometimes it's off. So you kind of get water when you get water, right? So we just want to provide some electricity up there so they can have constant
6: water. Nordby and his crews are in the thick of it now, but he says there will eventually be some time to reflect on just what they've been able to accomplish and how they impacted lives.
2: The crews have been doing an awesome job up there. The mayor's even kind of commented on how the crews, all their progress they've been making. I think all the guys here at XL just want to come down here and help out. The real gratifying thing that, that you end up seeing is when the customers come out and they're glowing year to year. the lights came on, and they can kind of go back to normal, right? What normal is. Uh, we've had some people get teary eyed when the guys are throwing them on. So they've treated us great whenever they see us. Just their smile does everything for the crews, makes them really motor through."
0: Nordby says his crew will head home early next week, but he'll stay a couple extra days to help the next crew hit the ground running on continued recovery efforts in the region. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. The University of Minnesota opens its regular baseball season this weekend with hopes of contending for a Big Ten championship. Head coach John Anderson is the all-time winningest coach in Big Ten history, currently in his 44th year with the program that includes as a player, assistant coach, and head coach. MNN M&M Sports Director Mike Grimm sat down with the legendary head coach this week before the team headed out for their first road trip.
6: Coach, exciting times, no doubt. Uh, it's uh, game week, and uh, I know that probably uh, has you excited.
7: Yeah, it's always exciting to start another season
6: and uh,
7: find out, uh, you know, how well you're prepared and and get a sense for where your team is at. And kids have an opportunity to compete against somebody other than themselves here, which has been going on since last fall. So I think you always uh, are excited to get uh, the season rolling. And uh, the best news is from last fall till today is we're healthy. We had a number of injuries that people came back to campus last fall, either from the prior season or from the summer schedule, and and uh, we weren't even able to have a full two-team inter-squad game in the fall. We had to move people around to different places and, and, and uh, find a way to inter-squad and interchange some pieces and guys hit and then go back on defense. The good news of all that, we got to move some players around to other positions, something we wanted to do. We've learned some more about our team. I think we've gained some flexibility in what we can do with certain players' being able to, to play multiple positions when the, when the need arises. So that was a good thing of all that. But uh, we're healthy for the most part. Couldn't be happier because uh, that's a big part, as we all know, in sport. You can talk about predictions and your team and what you can do. But uh, as we learned last year down the stretch when Boxwell went out and Terran Vavra battled his back again and coffee sprained his ankle during the Big Ten season bo- bothered him all year. It's 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 like basketball's gone through. It's just... You don't have your best players out there, you don't have your best team, and you can't predict what's going to happen, you can't control that. But I do know this, the team is prepared exceptionally well, physically, mentally, emotionally, probably the, 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 the best offseason and, and, and preseason practices and fall and winter we've had in a long time. So I'm encouraged by that.
6: You guys uh, will be in Atlanta this weekend, and then uh, it, not too far in the distant future, you guys are back home playing uh, under that uh, that uh, clear roof of U.S. Bank Stadium and the Vikings facility, and I know you mentioned uh, in the past that that was a big help last year, and I assume that uh, you're excited to get some games, and in particular, you got a nice Big Ten Pac-12 challenge coming up as part of that.
7: Yeah, I think that's what's happened here. We played there last year, and the word got out uh in the baseball social media circles and, and through the internet and then you have the Super Bowl in there last weekend and my emails burning up with people that want to come and play they see the, how beautiful the building is and they've heard that the baseball configuration has been fine so that's what happens I think when you have a billion dollar building and you can do some of the things we're talking about so um, we're trying to build these challenges I think it's going to be awesome to have UCLA and Arizona and, Washington from the Pac-12 and us in Michigan State and Illinois. Uh, three games a day, uh, three outstanding programs, a chance to showcase the Big Ten against the, the Pac-12 and and I think that's something I'm trying to put together going forward. Uh, 19, we will not be in there because of the Final Four in basketball and the setup has been moved way back and we lost our whole schedule in there so I had an, I had an ACC Big Ten in 19. We're going to move that to 20. Uh, we're going to try to move through that and try to work with some of the Power 5 conferences and see if we can continue that U.S. Bank Stadium and that beautiful facility. Tell us a little bit about your pitching staff. going to take about 10 to 15 games to figure out our pitching staff. That's the part that needs to really get uh, settled in. We're, pretty, we're going to play 10 or 11 position players that have a lot of experience, so... I think you're going to see uh, the work being done and trying to figure out how we're going to put our pitching staff together by the time we get to the Big Ten.
6: Yeah, and by that time, we'll, the weather will be good. You'll be outdoors, no longer indoors, and I know you always love playing at uh, beautiful Seabird Field here on, on campus as well.
7: We sure do, and uh, we're nice. it's nice to be able to have U.S. Bank Stadium, but we love to be outdoors at Seabird Field, and let's hope we have a nice spring where we can have some outsta- outstanding days out there and some great baseball, uh, Big Ten baseball. All right, good luck. Enjoy it. All right, Mike. Thank you.
0: That's John Anderson and Mike Grimm. That's going to do it for this week. Thank you for listening, and please tune in again next week for Minnesota Matters on this MNN station.